The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. As always, it's an honor and a privilege to spend this time with you looking at God's Word together. This morning, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 13, looking at the first beast. So, We'll be pondering verses 1 to 10. Again, that's Revelation chapter 13, 1 to 10. Last week, we saw a great enemy uh, signified as a dragon, Satan himself coming after the church. This week, we see one way he does that. Revelation 13, verses 1 to 10. This is the word of God. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth and worship it, or excuse me, all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, uh, we thank you that you are a communicating God. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you inspired this word so that we can know your thoughts, know about you, our world, ourselves, come to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the ultimate word, that we see our God and know our God through you and what you have done for us. Lord, we pray that as we ponder the communication you've given us this morning, that you would help us that you would uh, please give me wisdom and strength to communicate this faithfully and clearly, and that for all who hear, Lord, you would speak a better message than I ever could, a transformative one, to open our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our ears, to change our lives, to cause us to further trust you, to believe you, to live faithfully for you and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm convinced that ideas have consequences. 
real consequences. As Christians, we know, ideas have eternal, transforming consequences that lead to the highest of happiness or even the most terrifying despair. In fact, even what seems like a trivial idea can sometimes have massive consequences when there's a little power behind it. I want to invite you to consider the following quote, then I'll tell you who it's from. The quote reads like this, I do not agree with the view that to be moral, the motive of one's action has to be benefiting others. Morality does not have to be defined in relation to others. People like me want to satisfy our hearts to the full, and in doing so, we automatically have the most valuable moral codes. Of course, there are people and objects in the world, but they are only there for me. Interesting. Almost, almost sounds like the ethic of our cultural moment. The power of self, authority of self, the primacy of self. So who was it that communicated some of his ideas in this way? Well, this is a quote from Mao Zedong, the dictator of China. Then we realize his government and administration became responsible for well over 70 million deaths in times of peace. Ideas can have overwhelming consequences. Do you think that's true? Is it true that in a way, behind every bullet from every war, behind every oppression, back there somewhere there was an idea? As far as human comfort goes, you and I this today have lived in one of the sweetest little windows of human history, haven't we? Part of that, I think, in God's providence, our governmental structure is built on some good ideas. You've heard these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. I think that for government, those are pretty good ideas. Now, of course, we'd have to admit, in our nation's history and even today, at times our nation has been terribly inconsistent in applying these good ideas. But I think they're still good ideas, and they've had some enjoyable consequences, perhaps the best is that of religious freedom. And to think that we have the ability to believe and practice our faith as we so desire without the constraint or demands of the government. What a gift, right? What a gift religious freedom is. As Christians, we desire freedom of speech, freedom of religion for all people. And that is in part because we know salvation is by faith in the message of the gospel. It's not by coercion. But all this leads up to 
the idea that perhaps as modern American Christians, we, it's, it's almost easy for us to find religious freedom as being normal. And that's one way perhaps maybe our text this morning is challenging for us. We are reminded that historically and globally speaking, religious freedom actually isn't normal. So we'll be in Revelation 13, looking at verses 1 to 10, full of strange images, but its movements and flow, I think, are clear enough. There's four main themes. In verses 1 to 2, we see this grotesque picture of a beast. Verses 3 to 4, we see that the masses in general seem to be enamored by this beast and follow this beast. Verses 5 to 7, the beast has ideas to share and a purpose to accomplish. And then verses 8 to 10 shows us the call for Christians to endure through suffering. So these are things we want to unpack and understand together this morning with the purpose that we can be ready to live faithfully in our times, no matter what they may bring. So I actually want to see five things with you this morning. Number one, the beast. Number two, the pressure. Number three, the attack. Number four, the safety. And number five, the calling. So the beast, the pressure, the attack, the safety, the calling. Let's start by understanding this beast. We are introduced to him in verses 1 to 2. Beast is rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads. Looks like a leopard, a bear, a lion, uh, given authority by a dragon. What are we to do with this? We remember, again, Revelation is to be read biblically and symbolically. Revelation is apocalyptic literature, rich with symbolism, and these symbols come from the Old Testament. So we want to understand them there. That helps us interpret them here. As we do that, we'll see, and we have been seeing over and over again, page after page, how the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the reign of Jesus Christ and what he's done for his people. So in Revelation so far, we've been through the letters, the seals, the trumpets. Now we're in these signs and visions. They're all ways of looking at the same time and these same events from different perspectives, with the main focus being how do we live faithfully for Jesus during this time, this time we call the time of tribulation, the time we call the age of the church. It's the time between Jesus' first and his second coming. So this vision is about that time as well. And these verses are full of references to the book of Daniel, especially chapter 7. So we saw that this beast here in Revelation 13 is this bizarre combination of a leopard, a bear, a lion. And we're, we see in the book of Daniel, in Daniel's visions, all these pictures occur, these themes occur. So back in the book of Daniel, there's this remarkable prediction about the flow of history. There is a lion, a bear, a leopard, a beast with horns. The lion signified Babylon. The bear, the Medo-Persian Empire, the leopard, Greece, Alexander the Great, and the fourth beast, well, that was Rome. But what do we learn here? What are all these beasts signifying? They're signifying nation-states. It's governments. It's empires. 
And so we see in this imagery how sometimes the empires of the world can get awfully beastly, especially when it pertains to how they treat God's people. So a Jewish listener in ancient history, considering Daniel, a Jewish listener would remember Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Around 160 B.C., came and dominated Israel, desecrating their religion, massacring many, especially those who held to their faith. Holding to their faith was illegal, and following their faith brought horrid consequences. And even the audience of John's day would think of Rome and the pressure of persecution they faced every day. In fact, we know John is even writing this letter from exile. Persecuted by the Roman government. So the beasts represent government gone bad, especially in the light of their treatment of God's people. Well, in the case of Revelation 13, all these images from Daniel are combined into one. And so perhaps we're seeing that in this time of tribulation, beastly, tyrannical governments will always be part of the experience. And we begin to look at their inspiration. Uh, number one, in verse 1, the beast rises out of the sea. Ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on his horns. What this reminds us of, and we saw this last week, Revelation 12, the great enemy of the church is no less than Satan himself. And he's signified as a terrifying dragon. We learned last week, again, that Satan has fundamentally lost the war. Due to the victory of our king, the Lord Jesus. But Satan still is raging with the time he has left. Look at Revelation 12, 12. John writes, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And there's more context for our text this morning. At the end of Chapter 12, verse 17, John records, The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood, where? On the sand of the sea. So we remember, Satan wants to wreck the church, symbolically stands on the sea, and where does this beast then in Revelation 13 come from? John says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. In the Old Testament, the sea often signifies chaos and evil. And so we begin to understand that this beast aggressively persecuting is actually inspired by Satan. In verse 2, it says he, Satan has given him his authority. In fact, he looks a lot like the dragon looked with the horns and the heads and the crowns. And so we see again an expression of Satan's counterfeit wisdom, his counterfeit influence, his counterfeit authority. Moreover, this beast has blasphemous names on his heads. Well, what does it mean to blaspheme? To blaspheme is to aggressively revile. God and his ways. It's to go on the attack against God and his truth. 
And so we see that this is like, this is the beast's mojo. This is the tattoos on his head's blasphemy. We realize, don't we, the beast is about ideas, bad ideas, wrong ideas, rebellious ideas that revile God and his ways. And the beast, John is seeming to communicate, is something we should expect in the time between Jesus' first and second coming. I think here Revelation provides us, Revelation 13 provides us with a balance, perhaps, on the other side of Romans 13. Paul writes in Romans 13 that government is a gift of God, and truly, it is. Um, In fact, Christians are to submit to it as far as is possible. Paul says in Romans 13, the goal of government is to be able to recognize obvious good and reward it and also recognize obvious evil and confront it. So we realize even as humans are made in the image of God with value and dignity and conscience, um, so often in God's providence, governments can do great good. And we today can thank God, can't we, for peace economy that's working, for justice of law and order, for help for the poor. There's just infinite blessings that abound from decent, even just decent government. But we also know that as humans are fallen and selfish and corrupted and evil, so often will be their governments. And Paul, who wrote Romans 13 himself, knew well the teeth of the beast. Church tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded during the wave of persecution from Caesar Nero. So what is the beast? Well, if you wanted to summarize it, it would be governments gone bad in this age of tribulation. In fact, even inspired by satanic ideas to demand ideas of idolatry and their consequences and will often lead to the abuse and persecution, especially of God's people. Now the pressure. Uh, We see curiously in verse 3, the beast seems to have this kind of pseudo-resurrection. Revelation 13, 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast Commentators say the original audience here might have thought of Nero. Nero was a Caesar of Rome. First century, he was vain, he was violent, he was evil. Committed suicide in AD 68, but there were rumors uh, throughout the empire that perhaps he was still alive and had gone into hiding. So John's listeners probably thought of that. And so John is then saying, hey, Rome, this is a picture of the beast." Uh, but there's, there's more. Think big picture theologically, what we saw last week, what we're seeing again here. We looked at Genesis 3 last week, remember? And there's this promise that God would crush the head of Satan himself through the coming of the seed, the coming of his son. And of course, that's what happened with the victory of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. The head of the serpent was crushed. The victory was won. Satan has lost. And yet, sometimes it sure looks like he's winning. 
It's almost like he rose again. And the earth tends to marvel at him and his beasts rather than the one who's truly resurrected and victorious. The more we study, the more we see that throughout this section of Revelation, there is this theme then of counterfeit. You put all this info together and you find that the beast in a way is a counterfeit of Christ. Let me give you a few reasons to think that. Both were slain and rise to new life. Both have followers with their names written on, his, on their foreheads. Both have horns. Both are said to have authority over every tribe, people, tongue, nation. Uh, both receive worldwide worship. Both have a final coming, though at that point we see who the real thing is. And Jesus overwhelmingly triumphs. The idea of counterfeit, in, in fact, some commentators have said uh, Revelation 13 almost sounds like an unholy trinity. The devil gives his authority to the beast who seems to die and rise, but whose ministry is carried out by the second beast. We'll meet him next week. Direct contrast, right, with the living God, the Holy Trinity, the father who gives his authority to the son who died for his people and rose again and whose ministry is carried out by the Holy Spirit. What I see here then is this. The beast is selling a counterfeit gospel and the masses are buying in. Revelation 13, 4, they worship the dragon for he'd given his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? So overwhelming, so powerful. The beast is selling a counterfeit gospel. Gospel means good news. I think in a way, every view of the world has a gospel. It's a view of what the good life is. It's a view of what gives us meaning and purpose. It's, it's the view of the way to live. It's the way to satisfaction, to utopia. Christians know the true gospel is to be reconciled to the creator God through his son, the Lord Jesus, and what he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection. The true gospel is Due to what Christ has done, we want to love and follow our God according to his word. And one day we will enjoy the new world that will come at his return. Amen? It's good news. But the beast is going to give us a different gospel, a counterfeit gospel. It'll come in many ways, but it will start with the realm of ideas. There'll be a view on life. It'll be a view on what the problem is, what the fix to that problem might be, a view on what our hope should be. And many times John is telling us that that can become almost like a political religion and the masses will follow. Who is the beast? With worship. Isn't history full of this? To, to say who is like is an echo of Old Testament worship. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's worship to the God of the Bible. But here in Revelation 13, the worship goes not to God, not through his gospel, the gospel of his son, but to these beastly entities, giving these counterfeit, Gospels demanding allegiance to them. 
And this all adds up to immense pressure to bow the knee. We know John has the book of Daniel on his mind. In that book, remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, right, has this massive party, brings everyone with influence there. All the culture makers are there. All the people of power are there. And here, here came the law. When that music plays, bow to the idol or pay the price. And you can imagine, can't you, the pressure when everyone, all the power brokers, the academia, the entertainment, the political, they all bow except for these three. Can you feel this pressure today? As we ponder this text and the idea of the possibilities of how government, though good, ordained by God, can, can turn sour, can become beastly, can demand allegiance to an idolatry. Well, in America... It's far softer for us recently than than anything we see uh, in church history or around the world. But aren't there things that raise the eyebrow? I can tell you what raises the eyebrow for me. Do you ever wonder about a right-wing political rally celebrating God and country with no gospel of Jesus Christ to be heard? Do you wonder about that? Or do you wonder about parts of... uh, even bills that are being considered today in our Congress to politically demand, perhaps, the promotion of a new version of gender and sexuality that really opposes what the gospel teaches and opposes its call? Is it possible that these things could be uh, made law, made official? Many are concerned by that. Anyway, we just... We see the possibility here in Revelation 13, don't we? Governments gone bad, almost satanically inspired to demand allegiance to an idolatry, and there will be massive pressure to conform. The masses will buy in. That leads us to the attack, verses 5 to 8, the attack. Uh, We remember the beast has the same heart as the dragon, which is to crush the church. And it tries to do so in two ways. Number one, verses five to six, we see him opening his mouth, attacking the things of the living God and his people, speaking slanderously against his people, uh, bringing false teaching against God and his people. As we ponder church history, it's there. Historians tell us that Uh, In the first two centuries, Christians were often called atheists, cannibals, and even incestuous. Why? Well, they said Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. They ate the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ, and they called one another brother and sister. But these slanders kind of gave the right or the rationale to persecute them, where by the early second century, the Roman governor of Bithynia had no hesitation in sending to immediate execution those who had been denounced as being Christians. Can can you imagine? It's hard to imagine where just being seen as a Christian, being called a Christian could threaten your very life. In our day, uh, I have friends in one country where 
If you're a Christian, if you convert to become a Christian, you'll be called unpatriotic, antagonistic to your country. It'll be said that you're denying your culture, your heritage, your community, your nation, and persecution often follows. And in a small way, but a real way, perhaps more and more, if you hold to a biblical view of certain things, marriage, gender, sexuality, isn't it possible you could be called full of phobia, full of hate? We look at Revelation 13, we look at church history, we look at the world around us, and we realize these things are as normal as a Tuesday afternoon. The time of tribulation will be full of beasts. He attacks through false teaching, through slander. He also attacks through persecution. Verse 7 says, The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Sometimes it really looks like the beast wins. I was pondering this week, in the last 20 years, the, the, the Christian populations of Iraq and Syria have been devastated shrunk to such small sizes, looks like the beast wins. In recent years, thousands and thousands of Nigerians have been killed for being Christians. Looks like the beast wins. Recently, The Guardian reported, persecution of Christians around the world has increased during the COVID pandemic with followers being refused aid in many countries, authoritarian governments stepping up surveillance and Islamic militants exploiting the crisis, more than 340 million Christians, one in eight, face high levels of persecution and discrimination because of their faith. You can see how for many of our brothers and sisters, something like Revelation 13 is very real. And very precious to them. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. So there it is again. We've seen it several times over the last several weeks. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days. It all signifies the time of tribulation. The age of the church between the first and second coming of Christ. And so John is telling us beasts will roam until Jesus returns. There will be governments turned bad, satanically influenced, demanding adherence to idolatry and coming after the church. And many Christians believe this may even mature to one leader, uh, what Paul calls in 2 Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, where it seems like even at some point the whole world system is after the church and we look absolutely undone. But we find hope here. How long does it last? It's just three and a half years. In fact, authority was given. We, we, we're just reminded here, God is sovereign and the beast is on a leash. It can go only so far and no farther. His time is limited. So that's the attack. What are we then to do? What's our calling? Well, first we need to look to our safety. Verses seven to eight, our safety. Authority was given to the beast over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name 
has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Ponder this book with me. What a book. What was it called? Um, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And, and, and when was it written, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain? When was it written? It was written before the foundation of the world. And John asserts that if you're a Christian, your name is written in this book. This is incredible. It's an incredible picture of our spiritual safety. John is saying that if, if you've repented of your sin and trusted yourself to Jesus, you can know that God has had you in his mind for longer than you can imagine. Read Ephesians 1. God's people were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. In fact, if you're considering the gospel, if you would trust the gospel even today, you can realize that God is pursuing you to make you his own. Our names, the names of God's people, those who trust Christ, the names of the church are written in this book. It's the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Oh, consider the sovereignty of God. It was known by God that there would be a fall into evil it was known by God, planned by God, that Jesus would overcome evil as a sacrificial lamb. So we remember the gospel, that Jesus gave himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. In my sins, I've been beastly. I've been blasphemous. But in God's mercy, the Father sent his Son to take upon himself the just wrath that we deserve for our sin. And through faith in him, we can receive him and all that he has accomplished for us. We're forgiven. We're adopted as children. We're transformed to be more and more like Christ. The book of life of the lamb who was slain. This is life. This is eternal life, unending life that cannot be stopped. We see our safety as belonging to our God, known, protected, loved. We see the example of our Lord. He was slandered and persecuted first. Does not Jesus know the teeth of the beast? Wasn't it King Herod, Pontius Pilate, who sent him to the cross? He went there willingly for the joy set before him to have us as his own You've got to look to your safety. You've got to look to your safety to know that if you belong to Jesus, you're known, you're loved, and you'll be kept through whatever comes. There is no beast that can erase your name from the book. You're safe, and you'll enjoy God's kingdom forever. With the idea of our safety in mind, the love of God for, for us in Christ, it's unbreakable, unshakable, that takes us to our calling here in Revelation 13, 9 to 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
When Jesus says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear, what's he saying? He says, listen up, take heed, hear with your mind, hear with your heart. What's he saying? Some Christians are going to be taken captive and some are going to be slain with the sword. It occurs. It's occurring. Deep suffering can be possible. In part, in this chapter, through this idea of the beast, government gone bad, it's a reality of the time of tribulation. And what's the call? I want, I want you to think about this call. Notice there's, there's definitely no call to go to war here. There's not even a call here to change the world. What's it a call for here in this verse? Endurance and faith of the saints. We're called the saints because we're holy and beloved. And the call is keep going in living faithfully for Jesus, no matter the cost. This is love. It's love for God and his truth. It is love for one another. It is love for our neighbor. So I just want to be clear. Should, should Christians hate government or rail against government? Well, no, certainly not. Uh, look at the life of Daniel. Have you read that book, the, the prophet Daniel? So much of this imagery comes from his pen. But look at his life. In the early chapters there, he's, he's not a radical. No, he actually served in the high courts of Babylon, the lion, and Persia, the bear. He worked there with excellence and grace and wisdom. They desired his service because of how excellent he was. But he would not worship their gods. Respectfully, he did tell the truth and he had lines he would not cross he was willing to suffer for it and sometimes he did so we are called in a way to be like him full of gracious godly character willing to serve love our neighbor even love our enemy in any way possible with a line drawn in the sand Jesus is Lord and him alone. And we serve him and no other. Which means that no matter what any government says, Christians cannot and will not stop believing the gospel. Meeting together in fellowship on that gospel. Striving to live in light of the gospel according to the scriptures. And desiring to communicate the gospel and its implications winsomely, persuasively, and honestly with those around us. Our call is faithful endurance. And we can answer that call because at the deepest place we're safe. Our names are written in the book. We know the true gospel. We know what true love is. Even better, true love knows us. We are known and we are loved truly by our triune God. And he promises that we will rise again and we will reign with Jesus Christ forever and ever. It's worth it to endure.
even the worst of beasts. Let's pray. Our Father, this passage is uh, sobering, it's difficult, it's challenging. Uh, It does not tell us everything will be happy and easy in our lives. Uh, And we think of what so many people, what so many Christians have endured and even today are enduring. It humbles us. Lord, there's so much we can thank you for, the blessings we enjoy in our context. We thank you. But it also just gives us a, a dose of reality, a dose of sobriety. And Lord, we pray that our eyes would be open, that we would be gracious examples of your love and your truth and your wisdom, but we would be careful. And then when we see or smell themes of the beast, uh, we would not bow the knee, but we would be faithful to you, willing to pay the cost of faithfulness, whatever that might be, to endure in faithfulness. And we pray for strength if... uh, In your plan, somehow we face those really hard moments, those hard choices that you would give us the grace to glorify you well, and we would be willing to endure whatever your sovereign plan may have for us, for your glory, knowing that you are worth it, you are good, and we are safe with you. We will enjoy you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.